Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome to the ODI Fridays. We do this every Friday. You're welcome to join here in our offices or also from online. You can always, always follow us in hashtag ODI Fridays for more upcoming and new events. Also to streamline your questions at the moment um, after throughout this lecture to engage digitally um, or not <laughs> by just coming here. So today's talk is going to be presented by Becky Ingster. Uh, she'll talk to you about digital health and more. If you have questions, please hold them until the end. Uh, and I'll be hand handing around the mic um, for, for that. So you're on the applause. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for your time, and um, it's a great pleasure to be here. So uh, today I'm going to be talking about topics that are very sensitive. They're very controversial, um, so I appreciate your patience as we go through these, uh, these discussions. Um, so I've spent about 20 years in the field of mental health, uh, looking at it from different lenses. I'm not an expert in any one particular field or area, uh, but I'm just extremely curious across different sectors and different ways of uh, looking at mental health. So those are my disclaimers, and I have no conflicts of interest. Three words that mean a lot to me are integrity, imagination, and inclusivity. Uh, these are my sort of current formal affiliations. Um, so you can just see them listed there. Uh, but I like to see myself more through visual means and um, enjoying the arts, uh, 3D printing of jewelry and, and other ways of expressing myself and my interest in, in mental health. So um, I, I suppose just briefly, I started in genomics, uh, neuroimaging, big data, these types of areas and realized that I wanted to make more impact directly with people. Uh, I have experience running what we call uh, randomized control trials uh, with the drug erythropoietin, uh, but again, I wanted to make more impact through arts, music, culture, uh, policy, etc. So um, I've been sort of trying to do that over the course of 20 years. Uh, this is my boss, <laughs> so I'm usually at home in the day in the sandpit, so my partner's here today looking after her. Uh, she's nothing like AI. She does not follow commands as well as uh, <laughs> as bots do. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about my own experiences because uh, I don't always do that, but I feel at the Open Data Institute, this is a good space for me to be able to open up and be a little bit vulnerable about some of the experiences that I've had. Um, I'm going to highlight the field, which is just ridiculous. I'm going to try and do that in five minutes. So um, be patient and we can uh, continue our discussion uh, afterwards. Uh, so yes, for example, I'm very interested in creative behaviors. Um, and no need to apologize. <laughs> um, and then I will be calling for your support in many ways on different projects. Um, I, I've got a lot of ideas that I can't tackle on my own. I work with wonderful people and I'm always looking for more people to work with. Uh, these things in the blue box matter a lot to me, and I am a data scientist um, and many other things, but um, I sort of grapple these trade-offs and how they can sit together and, and contrast each other. But in the world of mental health, our effect sizes and our signals are very, very small. They're very personal. They are different uh, within ourselves across time and across people. Um, and we have a lot of noise, which sometimes I don't describe as noise. Um, so... We have to think about the individual and personalized precision health, but we also have to think about aggregated information and, and the population. Uh, and that's really tricky methodologically, uh, but also how uh, voices, you can lose a signal when you combine too many voices, or you can gain strength in signal. 
I think about active versus passive, both in terms of monitoring or uh, surveillance, but also intervention. And I think we, we tend to do passive monitoring or we think more along those lines and active interventions. But um, I've been playing in a space where uh, engaging with active monitoring and passive interventions. So I can give you a few examples later. Classification versus uh, prediction, I won't go into that too much because um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar, but we really struggle with this in mental health where accuracy can get very high uh, when you're trying to uh, separate uh, groups or subgroups, but prediction is, is very, very low, as I'll show through one example. And linkage versus privacy and privacy-preserving technologies, obviously a huge issue. Um, and a lot of people are sort of moving through uh, different platforms and tools and, and the data is moving. And uh, just learning about that longitudinal signal, I think, is really important. What we're missing, how we're able to capture it appropriately uh, with consent. Synthetic data versus real data, I think, is, a, is going to be very interesting in mental health. Um, controversial as well, but uh, will give us an opportunity to at least try to explore with more numbers because it's, uh, it can sometimes be very, challenge, very challenging uh, when we work with small data sets or when we have um, issues that are very rare events. So we can start to think bigger than the planet, um, so to speak. Um, and then in the clinic versus in the wild. So what are the trade-offs here? When you work with an anonymous bot, uh, you don't have access to certain things. Uh, you want to protect the privacy, which might boost the signal, but you can't regress out certain things like gender and, and other factors. So um, just looking at these trade-offs, when do we use whichever uh, environments? So my, my own experience is just to highlight a few here very quickly, uh, but I'm happy to discuss at any point. Um, at one point in my career, I had an issue with data quality and I didn't really know what to do. Um, but it turned out that opening the window, closing the window, doing things, clicking the same thing all the time led to massive fluctuations. And that jeopardized not only my findings, but the entire group's findings. Um, and it led to buying equipment that cost lots of money. So it was the way that I had to, once I realized um, how I then approached my group to say, this is some bad news and how using numbers to actually show this, uh, it really sort of shaped uh, how I feel I can... Um, share information with people and by showing these types of things. So the, the data quality um, has to be very high for me. Um, I then, I'm a co-founder of Hip Hop Psych uh, with uh, Dr. Kim Sule, consultant psychiatrist, um, and we had a viral article. Um, it was 1.3 million hits in 72 hours, and this led to a lot of attention. Um, it also led me to believe that it's not about impact factor. So yes, it was Lancet Psychiatry, great editor, great journal, um, but it was about impact. So I received a letter from a, a prisoner who was incarcerated for murder, and uh, I was going through this letter, and it was a very interesting experience how he's turned his life around within prison, and he's becoming a psychotherapist and trying to train and all these things. So he appreciated the work we were doing. So very complicated things. Uh, I'll skip forward quite quickly, but got very close to the Cambridge Analytica uh, issue in, in Cambridge. Um, I'm a fellow in the Department of Psychiatry um, and made some really good choices. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with the Wellcome Trust and um, I argued with them in a constructive way to ask for less money, uh, which is interesting, uh, but to repurpose the money for a cause that I believed in. So um, initially I said, well, I'll take nothing. And then we got there eventually. So um, ethical entrepreneurship and these things, getting a little taste for um, how to do things differently than standard kind of academia. 
Um, I did a poll for at the American Psychiatric Association and found some really surprising, striking uh, findings about data privacy and, and sharing. Uh, and so that was quite an interesting experience, how to handle that. Um, and then on a more positive note, um, being involved with the uh, Instagram, the removal of the promotional graphic self-harm images that you might have seen or, or heard about. Uh, again, I find this really interesting because the the experts in, in the world of suicide prevention weren't, sorry, they were divided to some extent. So it was very interesting to see, even with that extreme scenario, that there, there's always a gray area. Um, and when the press release was announced, um, I asked for a specific phrase to be uh, edited, uh, which Facebook didn't really want to do. So my name, I removed it from the actual statement itself. So I think it's, we have to be careful with what our name goes on. If it doesn't follow our beliefs, um, we should stand behind that, that principle and, and be very ethical. Today, hopefully I won't overrun too much, uh, but there are three areas where I would love support, I would love guidance, uh, because they're controversial, um, and I want to do good. I care about mental health, I care about people, and, and these are intense issues. Uh, I find that I have to take more risk and go into more risky areas in order to uh, bring the mental health conversation into those spaces. So I'd love your input. Um, I'll skip this, but um, just to say very briefly, I've approached 40 editors, uh, five of which are willing to change their abstract outline to include something called ethical discoveries. Uh, we haven't yet fully gone through that, so if you're interested in hearing more and getting involved and pushing this uh, to become um, more uh, well, real, <laughs> then that would be great. Uh, but basically, it's not just about the IRB or the REC. Uh, things happen after you get your ethical approval. And these are the kind of gold nuggets and the very interesting bits of information that we should be putting into our papers. We should be telling people that we have an algorithm that scrubs faces if you're just doing head counts, that reduces your file size, that reduces the, you save money. Or if you are working with Twitter data on a gang member who's deceased, you know, what is the issue about consent? Uh, one solution could be community consent. And how did you go about doing that? So in one sentence, I think we can inspire academics to learn from other experiences that we face, but just don't really get talked about. So yeah, I'd love your involvement there. This is a whole bunch of tiny pictures of uh, technology, digital mental health. Uh, in the interest of time, I won't go into too much detail, but we can see anything from digital social prescribing, online prescriptions, and sort of therapeutics or uh, you can have treatment online, chatbots, virtual reality, even drug discovery using VR, uh, sensors everywhere you could imagine, a sweatshirt that could hug you uh, if you fall, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, tangible interfaces uh, and so on. So we're not short on solutions, I think is what I'm trying to say here. Um, in 2013, if I had said to Siri um, that I'm thinking or I'm considering um, ending my life um, and jumping off a bridge, um, th this would have been the response. From a mental health perspective, this is deeply upsetting. Um, and have we come further from that point? Um, I'm not so sure. I want to think we have come a, a far distance, but there's so much more we need to do. And just by speaking with some... Um, colleagues and, and people that I really respect, sometimes phrases come out that really surprise me. So um, like the model was better than nothing. In mental health, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes doing nothing is better than 
risking harm. Okay, so um, that kind of made me a bit nervous. Um, someone saying who prefers life to death or who prefers death to life and asking to people to raise their hands. Again, this is so sensitive that um, it just did not fit right with, um, with me. And even within digital mental health, you know, there, there are situations where a company um, said something like, we have known privately for, for some time, um, so they're just holding back. It just sounds a bit creepy. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you have seen this, but just to illustrate the point that mental health can be invisible. And so when you add the smallest fraction of noise into mental health data, it's, it's not easy to fix this error. Uh, we know that 99.3%, it is not a given, but the symptoms, the feelings, the narratives uh, can, can be heavily uh, changed or manipulated. And you might have seen this as well, but sensors, again, mental health, this is a very clear example of getting it wrong, getting it really, really wrong, a lack of diversity in tech. Uh, but a person of color putting their hand under the soap dispenser, uh, the sensor doesn't recognize that, whereas uh, a Caucasian hand, it does, or a white paper towel, it does. So imagine again now the discrimination and the bias in mental health when our signals are, I would say, invisible or very, very difficult uh, to, to find. Uh, and methodologies, uh, I think we really need to kind of step up uh, this in mental health. Just to give one example very briefly, um, there were some suicide prediction models uh, asking the question, are we, are we ready to do this? And the accuracy of predicting a future event was near zero. I have to skip this, uh, but I'm very happy to discuss it in, in great detail. You may know the dead salmon example in big data in our imaging, but uh, the dead salmon was showing activation that responded to happy faces or uh, emotional faces. And again, I know this is uh, a crude example, but it just shows thresholding and all kinds of things that we need to do with the data. It's very easy to get it wrong. And um, obviously this uh, was a long time ago and it didn't adjust for multiple comparisons, but we can see modern problems where we could get it wrong. Um, I won't go into all the details here, but there's a lot of issues that we face when we're looking with longitudinal data, um, group data, etc. Especially with mental health, again, you want to rule out a physical condition, a thyroid condition or something else that might be masking it as a mental health problem, uh, but it's actually a physical problem. So where is the physical examination when we go digital for mental health? Um, other issues, uh, for example... Um, diagnostic manuals in different continents, they don't agree all the time. So when you're trying to scale your digital mental health solution, you can see here the customer says, love the app, you know, great app, but you don't recognize that I overeat and I oversleep. Um, I don't think that's good. It doesn't seem healthy, but you're not using, well, anyway, um, they were using a particular diagnostic manual that didn't recognize that. So um, we have to be so careful about scale. And when we go international to countries that don't even recognize, or sorry, I should say suicide is a crime and you could go to prison. So when we scale, things become a lot messier and everyone is so quick to want to scale. And of course, you could have a diagnosis within 14 days, this type of phrase that's just very damaging and I think should be, um, there should be legal penalties for this. But trust seems to be there in digital mental health, which is, which is encouraging. Um, so there's lots of uh, various examples, but I just chose this one, uh, supporting veterans, three times more likely to open up to uh, this sort of virtual assistant, uh, compared to the gold standard of an anonymous questionnaire. So I think that's, that's interesting. We've got task bots, social bots, but the future 
uh, in terms of the mental health bots, we're starting to see this emerge. There are various things. There are some playful ones. There are some using generative models, some using more um, safe scripted models. So this will be an issue about how we actually use AI and, and the information. Um, the, it's not just about the Turing test, it is also about the safety test. So what do we want the bot saying and who has to okay this in advance? It's interesting that, uh, yeah, a lot of people, well, 63% of, I think it was less than 5,000 young people, um, they would be comfortable with the bot giving them a diagnosis. And I think we need a lot more research in this space. And I'll leave it at that, but, but I can see sometimes where young people are coming from in, in this context. Uh, I'll skip this, but again, just to highlight that retrieval-based models, generative models, uh, we just have to be a little bit careful about the complex and unseen queries uh, and how we actually balance that fine line between you know, pushing our, our algorithms to behave but also respecting that we need the human control of this uh, model as well. So um, in mental health, you don't want to not remember something someone said five steps ago uh, if it's going to trigger the trauma or you don't want to ask them something again or it's an, a no-go topic. Uh, but at the same time, we just must be so careful because it's easy for uh, bots to get it wrong um, and say nasty things, as we know. Uh, we need to modernize the tools that we're putting into the technology. It's not just that tech is moving fast. We have to move the, the tools like the cognitive behavioral therapies, move these along as well and find a pace that works for um, all of these, um, the clinical and, and the technology. Um, there are many things that we'll need to think about with bots, uh, especially if, we, if they're going to be uh, a big part of the future. Um, sorry, the... Um, looking at like poor effective decision libraries and just the idea of artificial personalities playing a role and how, how that's going to be uh, embedded in a mental health context that matters such a, such a great deal. Okay, so I'm going to uh, jump into three examples and I hope I don't run out of time, but I already kind of fear I am. So I might pick up the pace here. Um, I love this, not because I said this, but um, it's just so true. One person's noise, there's so much stigma around hip hop uh, and mental health, but one person's noise is another person's signal. And I think with hip hop, this is so, so true. And I wanted to show you a couple things that we've been up to. So hip-hop lyrics spanning a couple decades, if you search for words that doctors would say, you basically see a flat line because no one's rapping about promethazine and things like that yet. Um, but um, then you start to look at, so that's rap word frequency and then across time in hip-hop lyrics. But let's ask young people what they're saying. Note that X to C, the yellow line, is flat. And Molly, which is what young people would use as a term, spikes before 2010. There are a lot of sociopolitical trends happening here. I can tell you a lot of geographical things and very interesting things from this data, whereas I couldn't with this. Uh, again, object recognition. Uh, this is codeine and promethazine. This is scissorp. So knowing what you're looking for, you have to understand the context to get the signal. Xanax, I'm sure you've heard of news stories, especially in England lately, um, has been on the rise. Obviously, there's a frequency thing going on there, but um, and Zan, and, and just other ways of, of um, abbreviating that. But um, to amplify that with social media, when you get 360 million views, uh, these words are are being amplified out to young people. So this is this is a tricky thing. So. Um, 
advertising and promoting these negative messages, and this is extremely amplified in social media, uh, we've got to explore this in more detail. Um, on the dark web, I'm very interested in exploring this space why young people are going to the dark web to self-medicate and to find solutions as opposed to going through um, other available channels. Um, and so I mentioned active monitoring. So I'm working with some excellent colleagues, uh, some really great people, including key changes. And what we're doing is we're building trust before we put sensors anywhere near anyone. And you can see here, this is heart rate across time. Now they're writing their songs. We just have instrumental beat. They can write whatever they want. Um, they can edit their track. They sort of get prepared. They maybe do some other stuff. They go into the booth, the recording studio, and then they have a post take. It's a very interesting pattern in their, in their heart rate here. Now I'm just focusing on, on the writing, the initial stage. We can see resting, writing begins, pauses thinking, et cetera, et cetera. There's a sudden stop. Something happens to the heart rate. Writing continues, heart rate drops. Everyone's different. There's a lot of patterns, but each, each person has their own way. And we can also look at what they're writing. So um, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, this person's talking about uh, the mania they're experiencing and not being able to sleep. So uh, mental health is, is very much a part of, of hip-hop culture. Um, we know that it also affects the brain when you freestyle. And I'm working with um, some excellent people as well, Tunde on lyrical combat. And what we're trying to do here is uh, that people can freestyle and they have keywords that they can put into their um, responses. And what's interesting is that the algorithm scores this and it's trying to build verbal dexterity or verbal skills in young people. And this is a big thing, which I won't go into, but related to mental health, psychosis, schizophrenia, um, negative symptoms. Uh, so what we're really trying to do is, is help mental health, but making it really fun and engaging. And we can cognitively load it with the words, or we can emotionally load it. We can help them by making it pair and things like that. So, and it's social, you can share it, or you can keep it private. But we know that uh, vocal psychopathology is, is an area that we have to explore in mental health, and it's showing some interesting um, in indicators in other diseases, um, especially when you um, emotionally engage the individual or cognitively engage the individual. The signal uh, gets more intense. There are many ethical things that we'll be considering, uh, which I'll skip, but we can discuss. Now, the second topic that I wanted to just uh, cover briefly, again asking for any support, is uh, looking at more acoustic passive interventions um, that are not happening now to my knowledge, but uh, they need to be tested for either use in mental health or, or not use in mental health. And um, I had a good conversation earlier that 15 kilohertz is what you, uh, the sound for uh, loitering teenagers, that's, that's what gets rid of them. <laughs> but we're in the ultra audible range, so the, the pink signal there. Um, and yeah, when you start playing with sound, really creepy things happen. So this is a paper from 1947, I think published in 48. And um, yeah, I won't discuss this in too much detail, but it's very disturbing what sound can actually do to animals, to people involving heating, and it's incredibly dangerous in the wrong context. So um, we have to be extremely ethical. And what we're trying to do is almost borrow the metaphor of the, um, the visual QR code, where you can actually embed information into that. But this is a sonic, an audio uh, QR code, so you can embed things into the algorithm, um, data into the sound. 
again, this comes with great risk because uh, it's ultra audible, you can't hear it, and that information is being transferred or sent uh, in that space. Uh, that's just one example. This is a very busy slide, so um, ignore it. <laughs> um, but just to show you that we're, we're doing some preliminary work looking at EEG. It's not the best tool, but it's a tool, and we'll go through many more types. But um, these ultra-audible signals are going into the brain. About 20% of the people were able to actually even perceive this ultra-audible in a different way. So we are very keen to understand the ethics before anything else is even done in this field. So um, I welcome any thoughts and suggestions on, on how we should move forward uh, very carefully in this space. Uh, I think it's a really good opportunity for anticipatory policies or regulations. So let's get prepared for the event, the possibility or, or um, even just the, yeah, the possible future of these acoustic um, interventions. Um, and just that individual differences really matter here uh, from a genomics perspective, from um, a, a psychological perspective. And so we need to just make sure we understand everyone's experience um, and monitoring. So to protect, if, if someone wanted to ever use this for bad, how can we create a system that can be aware of, of this uh, as well? So um, as I said, it's not necessarily an important thing unless it benefits men mental health. And if it harms, then we, we still have a purpose and a duty to regulate and to really um, share and, and figure out what to do with this. And the third con controversial issue and uh, area that I'm exploring is mental health and financial data. So we know that uh, there's a relationship here. Um, and I put out a call to action in Lancet Digital Health on Monday. Um, and there are many reasons, just listing a few here, and they're all listed in the paper. But there is um, a relationship between financial difficulties and, and mental health. Naturally, you, you would, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine that. Um, and we're seeing the emergence of these fintech banks, these challenger banks, and they're uh, collecting a lot of um, financial phenotyping information. And what are they doing? And what is it used for? And there's a lot of data that they're building. Rather than just being worried about it, ignoring it, I want to actually try and bring them to a conversation with mental health and see if we can do good with this information somehow. Uh, we see initial signs from the fintech world that they're trying to help customers the, to enable them to block their own transactions. So for a 48-hour period, you can block gambling, you can do things. So it's, it's a good gesture, uh, but I think they need to extend their duty of care and we need linkage across uh, mental health and care. Um, so, yeah, there's some great examples out there of, of ways you can... Um, leverage this, but um, I think we need to have a really good conversation. Uh, so I'm trying to create a consortium, bringing people together of how we can put all of this information uh, together for good. And I don't mean just taking bank details and intimate uh, electronic health records. I mean that we can also create bots and embed financial support into the bots, and we can uh, we can really try and use leverage the mental health field and bring finance into that space a little bit more, always being sure about consent and that the users are in control. And so just to end here and to say I would love your help, uh, there's a lot of different topics. 
and I certainly am not doing this all by myself. So I'm always looking for people who are interested in developing any of this work further. And if you're interested in digital mental health, uh, I have a conference, uh, a few more spots left, but the 13th, of, uh, 13th and 14th of August, and it's in London, and I run it every summer. So please get in touch, and thank you for your time. Thank you, that was great. Um, lots of information, I'm sure there's lots of questions as well. So if uh, before, just to keep in mind, the mic amplifies, um, does not amplify your voice, it's used just for recording, so people who are, um, so just record it so we can put it later. So put it close to your mouth <laughs> when you speak. Anybody would like to start with a question or two? And if not, I'm happy to. Yeah. to start something. So in, in my area, one of the biggest problem, or I'm sorry, a big problem is wellness versus um, more the clinical end of things. And the wellness industry, I think the global market is 4.2 trillion. And I worry that some people might develop tools that nudge people who are more or less okay, but to worry about their, their health. Um, we call this the worried well. And to manipulate and make people buy products or influence their decisions. So I, I'm very keen to make sure there's transparency about who's doing what for and what are their business models and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point because I remember reading an article a while ago saying that apps like Headspace and other mindful yes. apps were pushing people more into, into more anxious states than, than, than taking them out. Um, so is that, does that reflect what you've just said or, yeah? Like, like it always comes with the disclaimer of everyone is different. So what's right for someone would be wrong, et cetera, and that kind of thing. Um, but I do agree. And I think one way of, of adding some transparency, which we're not yet really discussing, is what is the business model? If you're going to have a business, uh, what are your incentives and, and how do you balance that with trying to actually help people? Uh, I, I'd love to, I think in the next year, really start going around and asking uh, the companies. I don't have any conflicts of interest and I just want to learn more about how they can stay sustainable to, to help people but, uh, and stay afloat, but to you know, make sure every penny goes towards something positive. Um, is there any data that's held um, by the private sector or a particularly tricky sector for getting hold of information from that you'd like to be able to access to either support you in your research or to help others develop tools? I think well, the biggest one would be the fintech or the financial sector um, and how to do that in the most sensitive way. Uh, I alone won't have like the answers, but um, I'm hoping that people will be, be able to brainstorm ways, whether it be um, data enclaves or ways of linking data uh, without it truly touching or, or briefly in time or some ways. And, and I know that some data experts are really keen on that. But again, this is sensitive. Uh, it's mental health and finance data. And it's very easy to, um, to, to be scared about bringing those two things together. So um, I, I would love to bring that out because I do think in that data, the financial data, there could be some really interesting social determinant upstream predictors or really powerful ways of saying this person might want help if they are in control of all the decision making and they've chosen in advance to, to want that 
to engage with that. So I, I would say that that um, comes with great risk, but if we could find a way to do it, um, it would be really good for mental health. Um, we, we do a lot of uh, work around data ethics and considering ethics at the ODI. Um, would you say that the work that you do and the impact that you're trying to have should fall within ethical considerations? Um, or, you know, kind of considering the, the unknown unknowns um, and I guess how, how do we do that better? How do we kind of build that in? Because we, we've obviously built a, a data ethics canvas. Yes. And I don't yeah. know, you know, I'd have to go back and have a look and see if, if mental health would kind of fit within that or considerations around mental health would fit within that. I think one strategy is to partner with people like the ODI to hold hands very tightly so that we don't, uh, we don't go astray or we, you know, we are always making sure that ethics is side by side or in the case of the ultra audible, which hasn't even really started at the front. So where do we set limits and boundaries before we even push forward? So uh, I think it's extremely important to, to be ethical um, personally, I think. So uh, working with partners who also share those goals is, is really important. When lines get crossed and when banks or other sectors want to go a different way, then I think it has to be very transparent that that's the, the incentives have split and the outcome measures and everything is, is not agreed. And yeah, so it's not a perfect world, but I want to just try and have a little slice or angle things, change the dial a little bit. Uh, and that I'd be happy with, with that. Uh, no, very interesting as well, because I was thinking that, as well, the digital culture is also something that plays a big part in digital health, um, mm -hmm. in a way, right? Because we're all online, we're all participate, we all share, uh, or not, uh, and there's definitely a lot of people who are the influencers, who yeah. create kind of like these huge waves uh, of, of follow-up and potentially harm or benefit, no? So, like, how could they play a role in, in all of this? Yeah, so... There's yeah micro-influencers and emotional contagion and this gray area of regulation uh, in the social kind of world. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because a lot of it slips through the cracks. So there, it really All comes... Street street. <laughs> scared me. If you had my heart rate monitor, <laughs> you're, <right. laughs> you're here, don't worry. It's Clifton, Clifton Street, you're here. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think it's unregulated. And so it, the responsibility lies on the individual to really, you know, take responsibility of, of their message. But sometimes when people are, are responding to you as a social media leader, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. Uh, and that can be very scary. Um, so how your message comes out. Uh, but there's an opportunity, I think, to work with uh, influencers and, and to raise awareness. And that's happening with, um, already with lots of people. So it's the good and the bad, again, just trying to always do good. Um, yeah. I've just got a very broad question because it's quite a new area, digital innovation for mental health. Mm -hmm. Who is the community? Who tends to be interested in this kind of question? Psychiatrists um, and healthcare professionals. I'm trying to sort of. Right 
<laughs> okay, I'm going to say I'm going to say it's a mix. <laughs> It is a mix, of course, um, and that's what I love about the community. So I'm building community here, and there are other pockets of communities, and we just keep trying to build. Um, but it, it's a mix. So art. Maybe the volume will be. This might be a mental health experiment. I'm not quite sure. I'm not involved with it, so um, don't cite me. Um, but um, maybe it's testing our patients. I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it is a mix. And I think that's the beauty of it. Sometimes we get art therapists who design digital app tools when they have chronic uh, treatments. So for example, the person here has a chronic illness and experiences a lot of pain. Um, and so she designed, or she works with digital art because uh, at one point she could only really use her hand uh, in, in a high level of comfort. So, um, and so yeah, I would say it brings together everyone because mental health is everywhere, or I see it as everywhere in every topic. Um, and so it touches all of our lives. But I would say healthcare are, are ob the obvious um, yeah, interest, and, and tech as well. But I think tech sometimes just kind of go and try. And <laughs> um, yeah, so a mix, I would say. Okay, so it's, a, it's the health and mental health is very clear then, I guess. Yeah, yeah like, well, the, even like the mental health. So mental health nurses, psychiatrists, and, and that sort of thing. I think they're really keen to find to, ways to increase access uh, to, to people. And in their day job, they don't really have a lot of time to uh, learn the tech skills or, you know, build NLP models and computational linguistics and stuff like that. So, uh, but they're so keen to, to help people that they want to learn more. Okay, thanks. Questions? Yeah. So it's me again. Um, it's this ultra-audible thing is kind of quite exciting and quite scary in equal measure. Scary. Yeah, well, most exciting, scary. Let's say scary twice. Depending, yeah, <laughs> depend, depending on what's, what it's used for. Yeah. Could you give an example of uh, ways that it could be used for good and, uh, and, and what you would fear that it might be used for for bad? Okay, good. I don't even want to give a specific example uh, because I don't allow myself to think that far on this particular topic. So the first step really is to understand what it's doing inside our brains and also on the outside, our minds, how we even think about the topic, uh, how we perceive the study of this area. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think it's it's too tempting to want to say that it can be used as an intervention, uh, etc. Uh, we have put in a grant to NASA to work with astronauts in in certain contexts, but again, when it comes to mental health, it's so it's such a um, I don't know a protected space. I I just wouldn't want to uh, get that far ahead uh, because it could very well be a terrible thing. Um, so, yeah, I think an example of terrible is, uh, well, you don't even have to have evidence that it's terrible, but the perception of it being terrible and voices um, being embedded into sound you can't hear is, is terrifying uh, to some people who have psychosis or have some sort of um, an experience with delusions or auditory hallucinations. Uh, it, it could make people really paranoid about being in certain locations and uh, brainwashing, watermarking, all of these types of, of things. So um, I think that's what we're focusing on now, really understanding those potential risks and how people perceive 
those and, and then just seeing, um, getting some measures inside the brain to see, well, what is it doing? Who is it, who is it impacting? Um, but there is also a lot of research, uh, research out there trying to do things um, like mice have ultra-audible uh, vocalizations when they're in distress. Babies, infants can hear a little bit past our 20 kilohertz threshold. So, um, so there, there are ways to explore it. There's some work in autism and, and things like that. But me personally, I think we just take it step by step and put ethics and perceptions of the, of the psychological experience. So. Hello, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask, with increasing amounts of data being gathered on people and um, companies sort of developing phenotypes for their users and trying to understand them, a lot of it, of course, is relevant to people's mental health. Mm -hmm. um, but as you give people access to this data and empower them to understand it and use it, how uh, can you avoid it sort of becoming a normative force and people sort of self-monitoring, self-regulating uh, um, in line with kind of um, normative values which maybe haven't come from the most diverse uh, sort of backgrounds or representations. How can you keep that diversity and things in the field? If, I, if I'm getting you correctly, yeah. I'm picking up a little bit of the quantified self or just being overly worried. Um, so in mental health, this is very dangerous and you could look at eating disorders or stepping on the scales and that being a number back in the day and now it's just an endless space where you can get numbers that could either reaffirm you or crush you and these things, I think it's extremely dangerous. So my take is, is providing well, obviously working with people <laughs> and having options of what they could see, but at the same time, not necessarily showing everything about the analytics and maybe redesigning things so that it's not like based on popularity or the number of views or things like that. I think just kind of cleaning some of that data away and making it more about the connections, the relationship, the people, uh, I, I would just say be careful with those, those numbers in mental health because they really do... Uh, make a difference. On the flip side though, um, sometimes you can be using an app that uh, will look at your side effects of your medication and that could be extremely useful or it could maybe stop you from doing something uh, because you know uh, the number. So outside of mental health in diabetes, um, just knowing that okay maybe I shouldn't have this, uh, sorry they're like patches that you can put in your phone can just check uh, what your levels are, uh, knowing that might make you not make a decision and, and do something else. So I think we'll see. I'm not sure. I don't have an answer, but I think it has to be a careful consideration and very specific to the context of the tool uh, being, it's a great point. Hi. Um, this is just a question that's sort of come up whilst watching your presentation, so forgive me if it's not sort of fully thought out, but um, I just wondered where you thought the balance was between sort of uh, uh, the sort of individual versus the population in the sense that if you're, uh, I mean, it came up when you talked about fintech stuff, so looking at that data might be sort of a bit of an invasion of privacy for one individual person, yes. but it might then uh, have sort of a greater impact, a sort of positive impact if you're 
taking that as part of a larger data set, if you see what I mean? Absolutely. So where's, where's the balance there? Like creating filters, so rather than knowing right, drilling right down to what sport or particular interest, just active or not active, or just having broader labels and then across the aggregated information, I think is what you're trying to, to say. Um, I think, yes, I absolutely think that in, um, it, it could be really good. Um, I worry a little bit about clinical heterogeneity, which just means that the more data you add, the more, uh, not noise, it's not the right word, but different scenarios, different things, so you might lose your signal a little bit. Um, and an example of that is a data set in our imaging was sent around to, I think, 13 different UK sites, and they effectively held, controlled for clinical heterogeneity by having the same data set. All the different methods produce different results, um, but layer that on top of then having different people with different life experiences, culture, uh, views, uh, perceptions and things. So you get more, it's, it's really tricky to go from one extreme to the other, but I think it's really important to, to try to work with population level information. And, and just to make sure that you're not trying to say to an individual that because of this, you fit into that. So just transparency about um, causality and association and just the individual not always having to be a part of that uh, association. So yeah, trying to educate and yeah, tease these apart, really important. But causality is really tricky with mental health. And, yeah. Do we have more questions? Um, great, thanks so much. Whew, done. Okay. Um, we, can, we can have a couple of more or a minute of silence just to process everything. And uh, the, Sorry. No, no, I mean, because it's, it's like, it's really interesting information. I think not, not everybody is really aware of the complexity of the whole ecosystem of, of what's going on because we have digital, we have mental, we have sound, we have different types of groups, and then life kind of continue. you know, there's no pause to it. And then new things are coming in, so it's interesting to just take a minute and think about it yeah. uh, as where we're going forward. Okay. So Thank great. you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.